Good morrow, all you backlit dragon queens and torched tarleys, and welcome to another still smug book talk. As ever, it's your devious dark lord of Castle Sterling, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, wielder of six stringed axes and deliverer of death by distortion. Today we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 6, East Watch from a book reader's perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries that book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to skewer the speaker with your Valyrian steel rapier. That being said, show watchers who lust for information like Tormund Giant's Bane lusts for Brienne of Tarth, and who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to, and maybe your show watching experience will be enhanced by the book information. Spoilers in 5, 4... Three, two, one. All right, clocking in at 59 minutes, I feel like so much happened in Eastwatch, even if it wasn't a lot of action. Danny lets John caress her dragon. Jamie and Tyrion and Bronn, oh my. Gendry, hammer time. Jorah's back. Oh wait, nope, Jorah left again. Sam continues his spree of midnight theft and escape. Boners and fermented crab. Eastwatch 7. Annulments and non-bastard Targaryen snows. Cersei Preggers. Ha! Yeah, all crazy stuff. But let's talk about the book crossovers. So the first thing we see is Jamie and Bronn popping up out of the water. Jamie having escaped a near-death scenario by being dragged down deep with his plate armor. And I should have talked about this last week uh, after he sank, but I figured now we could talk about it. And that's uh, the way armor is talked about in relation to water in the books. So basically, it is known that if you are wearing armor and you fall in the water, you are a dead man. And there are various instances where this is discussed. The first instance we'll talk about takes place in A Storm of Swords, Brand 2, as Brand, Jojen, and Mira discuss the strange area of Westeros where they come from, in the swamps of the Neck, where House Reed's castle, Greywater Watch, allegedly floats around the bogs. There are no knights in the Neck, said Jojen. Above the water, his sister corrected. The bogs are full of dead ones, though. That's true, said Jojen. Andals and Iron Men, Freys and other fools, all those proud warriors who set out to conquer Greywater. Not one of them could find it. They ride into the neck, but not back out, and sooner or later they blunder into the bogs and sink beneath the weight of all that steel and drown there in their armor. The thought of drowned knights under the water gave Bran the shivers. He didn't object, though. He liked the shivers. So the bogs around Greywater Watch are full of dead knights sunk into the muck in their armor, which is pretty wild. They can't escape. The next example comes when Tyrion first sees Tywin in King's Landing, following waking up after nearly being killed by Sir Mandon Moore, a member of his own nephew's Kingsguard, during the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Sir Mandon attempted to assassinate Tyrion, assumably at the orders of Cersei, but only managed to cut off his nose before Pod sealed his fate by pushing him into the murky depths of the Blackwater. A Storm of Swords, Tyrion won. Balabar came to the city in Lord Redwine's retinue, a gifted healer, it's said. It was kind of Cersei to ask him to look after you. She feared for your life. 
Feared that I might keep it, you mean. Doubtless, that's why she never once left my bedside. Don't be impertinent. Circe has a royal wedding to plan. I am waging a war, and you have been out of danger for at least a fortnight. Lord Tywin studied his son's disfigured face, his pale green eyes unflinching. Though the wound is ghastly enough, I'll grant you. What madness possessed you? The foe was at the gates with a battering ram. If Jamie had led the sortie, you'd call it valor. Jamie would never be so foolish as to remove his helm in battle. I trust you killed the man who cut you. Oh, the wretch is dead enough. Though it had been Podrick Payne who'd killed Sir Mandon, shoving him into the river to drown beneath the weight of his armor. A dead enemy is a joy forever, Tyrion said blithely, though Sir Mandon was not his true enemy. So definitely not a good plan to put yourself in a position where you could drown when you're wearing armor. Although, some people, of course, are lunatics and wear armor anyway, even if they're aboard ships. And right at the top of that list are the Ironborn. A wiki of ice and fire tells us, Long ships of the Iron Fleet are used as fast raiding ships. They can travel twice as swiftly as a merchant cog and can carry up to 100 men. The standard tactic for engaging is to board the enemy ship, the crew being combatants, as well as the Ironborn preference for wearing armor despite the risk of drowning, gives the Ironborn an advantage when boarding. The Ironborn are daring masters of the sea, fearless of drowning, and thus tending to wear armor unlike most sailors. Victarion, who is basically Euron in the show, <laughs> is even willing to wear heavy plate. In battle, the Ironmen try to board enemy ships and slaughter the crew. On land, they strike fast and move on before local forces can muster. Victarion wears plate armor in combat, a helm in the shape of a kraken, and wields a cruel axe. And we have a fun example of this from A Feast for Crows, the Reaver, with Victarion boarding a ship and thinking to himself about how the non-ironborn are basically pansies. The drums were pounding out a battle beat as the Iron Victory swept forward, her ram cutting through the choppy green waters. The smaller ship ahead was turning, oars slapping at the sea. Roses streamed upon her banners, fore and aft a white rose upon a red escutcheon. Atop her mast, a golden one on a field as green as grass. The Iron Victory raked her side so hard that half the boarding party lost their feet. Oars snapped and splintered, sweet music to the captain's ears. He vaulted over the gunwale, landing on the deck below with his golden cloak billowing behind him. The white roses drew back, as men always did at the sight of Victarion Greyjoy armed and armored, his face hidden behind his kraken helm. They were clutching swords and spears and axes, but nine of every ten wore no armor, and the tenth only had a shirt of sewn scales. These are no iron men, Victarion thought. They still fear drowning. Get him, one man shouted. He's alone. Come, he roared back. Come kill me if you can. Yeah, so we can say that Jamie's survival is slightly dubious, but I'll let it slide. No, not a huge deal here. Our next book crossover is How Drogon Likes Jon Snow. And that didn't happen in the books. Drogon's never met Jon Snow. But this instance in the TV show was remindful of an incident and character in A Song of Ice and Fire. That character is Ben Plum, also, or well, better known as Brown Ben Plum. He's the captain and commander of the Second Sons Sellsword Company. Brown Ben Plum is an interesting character because Danny's dragons seem to like him, and he makes it known that he apparently has a drop of dragon's blood himself, claiming to be a descendant of a Targaryen princess. So this sort of hints that the dragons may be partial to people of Valyrian 
or maybe even specifically Targaryen bloodlines. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us he claims to have a drop of Targaryen blood, which must be why dragons, particularly Viserion, have an affinity for him. Tyrion Lannister actually suspects him to be a distant descendant of a younger son of Viserys Plum and a possible distant relation to the famous Ossifer Plum, and that Ben thus has two drops of dragon's blood, not just one. As Viserys Plum was rumored to have been fathered by King Aegon IV Targaryen on Princess Elena Targaryen, Ossifer's wife. A Storm of Swords, Daenerys V. Her captains bowed and left her with her handmaidens and her dragons. But as Brown Ben was leaving, Viserion spread his pale white wings and flapped lazily at his head. One of the wings buffeted the sellsword in his face. The white dragon landed awkwardly with one foot on the man's head and one on his shoulder, shrieked, and flew off again. He likes you, Ben, said Danny. <laughs> and well he might, Brown Ben laughed. I have me a drop of the dragon blood myself, you know. You? Danny was startled. Plum was a creature of the Free Companies, an amiable mongrel. He had a broad brown face with a broken nose and a head of nappy gray hair, and his Dothraki mother had bequeathed him large, dark, almond-shaped eyes. He claimed to be part Bravosi, part Summer Islander, part Ibanese, part Cahoric, part Dothraki, part Dornish, and part Westerosi. But this was the first she had heard of Targaryen blood. She gave him a searching look and said, How could that be? Well said Brown Ben. There was some old plum in the Sunset Kingdoms who wed a dragon princess. My grandmama told me the tale. He lived in King Aegon's day. Which King Aegon? Danny asked. Five Aegons have ruled in Westeros. Her brother's son would have been the sixth, but the usurper's men had dashed his head against the wall. A Storm of Swords, Daenerys Six. Her blood riders were waiting for her. Silver bells tinkled in their oiled braids, and they wore the golden jewels of dead men. Nereen had been rich beyond imagining. Even her cell swords seemed sated. At least for now. Across the room, Grey Worm wore the plain uniform of the Unsullied, his spiked bronze cap beneath one arm. These at least she could rely on, or so she hoped. And Brown Ben Plum as well, solid Ben, with his grey-white hair and weathered face, so beloved of her dragons and Dario beside him, glittering in gold. Dario and Ben Plum, Grey Worm, Eerie, Jiqui, Missande. As she looked at them, Danny found herself wondering which of them would betray her next. The dragon has three heads. There are two men in this world who I can trust, if I can find them. I will not be alone then. We will be three against the world, like Aegon and his sisters. In a dance with dragons, Daenerys sends Brown Ben Plum and the Second Sons to guard the south against any incursions by Yunkai. When Plum returns to the city and discovers Daenerys could no longer control her dragons, he decides her cause is lost and goes over to the Yunkai. A dance with dragons, Daenerys Six. Sir Grandfather knows how to count. The Second Sons have gone over to the Yunkai. Dario turned his head and spat. That's for Brown Ben Plum. When next I see his ugly face, I will open him from throat to groin and rip out his black heart. Danny tried to speak and found no words. She remembered Ben's face the last time she had seen it. It was a warm face, a face I trusted. Dark skin and white hair, the broken nose, the wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. Even the dragons had been fond of old brown Ben, who liked to boast that he had a drop of dragon blood himself. Three treasons you will know. Once for gold, and once for blood, and once for love. Was Plum the third treason, or the second? And what did that make Sir Jorah, her gruff old bear? 
Would she never have a friend that she could trust? What good are prophecies if you cannot make sense of them? If I marry Hisdar before the sun comes up, will all these armies melt away like morning dew and let me rule in peace? Dario's announcement had sparked an uproar. Reznak was wailing. The shaved pate was muttering darkly. Her blood riders were swearing vengeance. Strong Belwas thumped his scarred belly with his fist and swore to eat Brown Ben's heart with plums and onions. Please, Danny said, but only Missande seemed to hear. The queen got to her feet. Be quiet! I have heard enough! A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys six. The others bowed and went. Danny took Dario Naharis up the steps to her bedchamber, where Eri washed his cut with vinegar and Jiqui wrapped it in white linen. When that was done, she sent her handmaids off as well. Your clothes are stained with blood, she told Dario. Take them off. Only if you do the same, he kissed her. His hair smelled of blood and smoke and horse, and his mouth was hard and hot on hers. Danny trembled in his arms. When they broke apart, she said, I thought you would be the one to betray me. Once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love, the warlock said. I thought, I never thought Brown Ben, even my dragons, seemed to trust him. She clutched her captain by the shoulders. Promise me that you will never turn against me. I could not bear that. Promise me. Never, my love. So we have recurring references to Brown Ben Plum being liked by the dragons, that they have an affinity for him, and that he has dragon's blood. So this seems to hint repeatedly, basically tell us that the dragons know when someone is is you know has the dragon blood as Targaryen or Valyrian or something like that. So the fact that we're seeing this with Jon is now the TV show sort of hinting that as well. And hey, maybe they already hinted at that back in season five, was it, with um, with with the dragons in the in the um, in the pit in Marine in the cave thing um, when they were all friendly with Tyrion and they let him come up to them and take their chains off. Maybe Tyrion is a Targaryen too. That actually is a theory going around there. Look into that. If you guys haven't, maybe I'll talk about it on Still Smug sometime, too. Our next book reference is a pretty funny one. <laughs> when <laughs> Sam is at the Citadel with Gilly and she's reading Septon Maynard's account of his, you know, his big book where he catalogs a 15,782 steps at the Citadel and all the <laughs> windows at the, at the Sept of Baylor and everything, he, she mentions that he records all of his bowel movements. And this is funny because it references a a reading from A Feast for Crows in a Samwell chapter where he's down in the uh, he's down in the library of Castle Black and he's devouring books down there metaphorically as he always does and comes upon a a an accounting by an old Lord Commander where he records his bowel movements as well and. It's funny, he's devouring books, like I said, metaphorically, but he stumbles upon a mouse who's literally devouring books. A Feast for Crows, Samwell won. The mouse was half as long as his pinky finger, with black eyes and soft gray fur. Sam knew he ought to kill it. Mice might prefer bread and cheese, but they ate paper, too. He had found plenty of mouse droppings amongst the shelves and stacks, and some of the leather covers on the books showed signs of being gnawed. It's such a little thing, though and hungry. How could he begrudge it a few crumbs? It's eating books, though. After hours in the chair, Sam's back was stiff as a board, and his legs were half asleep. He knew he was not quick enough to catch the mouse, but it might be he could squash it. 
By his elbow rested a massive leather-bound copy of Annals of the Black Centaur, Septon Jorquin's exhaustively detailed account of the nine years that Orbert Caswell had served as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. There was a page for each day of his term, every one of which seemed to begin, Lord Orbert rose at dawn and moved his bowels, except for the last, which said, Lord, Lord Orbert was found to have died during the night. No mouse is a match for Septon Jorquin. Very slowly, Sam took hold of the book with his left hand. It was thick and heavy, and when he tried to lift it one-handed, it slipped from his plump fingers and thumped back down. The mouse was gone in half a heartbeat, skittery quick. Sam was relieved. Squishing the poor little thing would have given him nightmares. You shouldn't eat the books, though, he said out loud. Maybe he should bring more cheese the next time he came down here. <laughs> so I was laughing pretty hard at this part being a book reader, knowing about this Lord Commander and his rec records of, uh, of all of his bowel movements. I thought it was a cool little nod to the book readers that they put this in here in relation to Septon Maynard. Our next reference is Bran and A Thousand Eyes in One. Bran, looking through the eyes of all those ravens, jumping back and forth between the animals, brought images to my mind of Blood Raven, the legendary great bastard, son of Aegon IV, a powerful sorcerer who is said to have a thousand eyes and one. As we talked about last week, and is still smug, Blood Raven is actually the three-eyed raven under the tree in the book series. So we'll talk a little bit more about him this week and read some examples. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us Sir Brendan Rivers, called Bl Lord Bloodraven, was a legitimized great bastard of Aegon IV Targaryen and Melissa Blackwood, the king's sixth mistress. Brendan's personal arms were a white dragon with red eyes breathing red flame on a black field. Brendan was a Targaryen loyalist during the Blackfire rebellions, the hand of Ares I and Magar I Targaryen, and a lord commander of the Night's Watch. Shiera Seastar, another bastard of Aegon IV, was his mistress. His half-brother Aegor Bittersteel Rivers desired Shiera also, which served in increasing the enmity between the two. Bloodraven was thought to be a sorcerer. An albino, Brynden had milk-white skin, long white hair, and red eyes. On the right side of his face, he had a red wine-stained birthmark that extended from his throat up to his right cheek from which he earned his name Bloodraven, as the birthmark was said to look somewhat like a raven drawn in blood. However, Sir Duncan the Tall thought the birthmark just looked like a splotch. According to George R. R. Martin, it is more—it is, is, uh, it is more a suggestion of a raven shape like an ink blot. Brendan was not as tall or muscular as his half-brothers. He was a shade under six feet tall and very thin, gaunt, with a grim, forbidding aspect and a sinister reputation as a sorcerer and spymaster. He typically wore colors of, quote, blood and smoke, with smoke being a dark gray that was mottled and streaked with black. Because his skin was so sensitive to light, he usually went about cloaked and hooded. He was an expert bowman. Brynden lost an eye during the first Blackfire Rebellion at the Redgrass Field in single combat with Bittersteel. This was after Blood Raven and his soldiers, a group of longbowmen called the Raven's Teeth, killed Damon Blackfire and his two sons, raining arrows down upon them. This earned him the nickname of Kinslayer. People say Blood Raven guided the arrows himself with sorcery. He rarely covered his empty socket with a patch, though, preferring to display his scar and empty socket to the world. He wore his white hair straight into his shoulders, with a front brushed forward to cover his missing eye. 
Kind of like Carl in The Walking Dead. That's funny. As Lord Bloodraven, Brendan was rumored to be a sinister sorcerer who effectively ruled the kingdom with spies and spells. A popular riddle was asked, How many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have? A thousand eyes and one. The song of A Thousand Eyes and One was written about Brendan. The World of Ice and Fire, the Targaryen Kings, Arius I. It has been suggested by some that a likelier cause for Bloodraven's rise to power was the fact that Ares' interest in arcane lore and ancient history matched that of Rivers, whose studies of the higher mysteries were an open secret at the time. Bloodraven had already risen to prominence at the court, but few expected that Ares would name him Hand. When he did, it kindled a quarrel between the king and his brother, Prince Makar, who had expected the Handship to come to him. Thereafter, Prince Makar departed King's Landing for Summerhall for years to come. Bloodraven proved to be a capable hand, but also a master of whispers who rivaled Lady Misery. And there were those who thought he and his half-sister and paramour, Shiera Seastar, used sorcery to ferret out secrets. It became common to refer to his thousand eyes and one, and men both high and low began to distrust their neighbor for fear of being a spy in Bloodraven's employ. Yet Ares had need of spies, given the trouble that followed the great spring sickness. Summer came, and with it a drought that lasted more than two years. Many blamed the king, and many more accused Bloodraven. There were poor brothers who preached treason, and knights and lords as well. And among those were some who whispered a specific treason, that the black dragon must return from across the narrow sea and take his rightful place. A Feast for Crows, Samuel II. The old man heard him. Though Eamon's eyes had dimmed and gone dark, there was nothing wrong with his ears. I was not born blind, he reminded them. When I last passed this way, I saw every rock and tree and whitecap, and watched the grey gulls flying in our wake. I was five and thirty and had been master of the chain for sixteen years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon, and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings in golden fetters. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brendan Rivers. Later, he was chosen Lord Commander. Bloodraven, said Darian. I know a song about him. A Thousand Eyes and One, it's called. But I thought he lived a hundred years ago. We all did. Once I was young as you. That seemed to make him sad. He coughed and closed his eyes and went to sleep, swaying in his furs whenever some wave rocked the ship. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So Blood Raven's A Thousand Eyes and One is mentioned frequently in the Dunkin' Egg novellas as Blood Raven's ominous presence unnerves Dunk, his spies seemingly anywhere at any time. It all culminates with Dunk coming face to face with Blood Raven at the end of the Mystery Night. The Mystery Night. Only then did the king's hand turn to Dunk. He was older than Dunk remembered him, with a lined, hard face, but his skin was still as pale as bone and his cheek and neck still bore the ugly wine-stained birthmark that some people thought looked like a raven. His boots were black, his tunic scarlet. Over it he wore a cloak the color of smoke, fastened with a brooch in the shape of an iron hand. His hair fell to his shoulders, long and white and straight, brushed forward so as to conceal his missing eye, the one that Bittersteel had plucked from him on the red grass field. The eye that remained was very red, how many eyes has Blood Raven? A thousand eyes and one. So our first clue that Blood Raven is the three-eyed raven is when Bran meets Blood Raven himself under the tree in A Dance with Dragons. A Dance with Dragons, Bran too. Are you the three-eyed crow? Bran heard himself say. A three-eyed crow should have three eyes. He has only one, and that one red. Bran could feel the eye staring at him shining like a pool of blood in the torchlight. Where his other eye should have been, a thin white root grew from an empty socket down his cheek and into his neck. A crow? The pale lord's voice was dry. His lips moved slowly, as if they had forgotten how to form words. Once I, black of garb and black of blood. The clothes he wore were rotten and faded, spotted with moss and eaten through with worms but once they had been black. I have been many things, Bran. Now I am as you see me, and now you will understand why I could not come to you, except in dreams. I have watched you for a long time, watched you with a thousand eyes and one. I saw your birth and that of your lord father before you. I saw your first step, heard your first word, was part of your first dream. I was watching when you fell, and now you come to me at last, Brandon Stark, though the hour is late. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3 Your uncle may have been named for me. Some are still. Not so many as before. Men forget. Only the trees remember. His voice was so soft that Bran had to strain to hear. Most of him has gone into the tree explained the singer Mira called Leaf. He has lived beyond his mortal span, and yet he lingers. For us, for you, for the realms of men, only a little strength remains in his flesh. He has a thousand eyes and one, but there is much to watch. One day you will know. What will I know? Bran asked the reeds afterwards, when they came with torches burning brightly in their hand to carry him back to a small chamber of the, off the big cavern where the singers had made beds for them to sleep. What do the trees remember? 
so it seems that by merging with trees, you're somehow able to see through all the weirwood trees, and then eventually you gain thousands of eyes by being able to see through all the other creatures that are <laughs> that are around. And here's um, an example of them sort of explaining that a little bit. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. Only one man in a thousand is born a skin changer, Lord Brendan said one day after Bran had learned to fly. And only one skin changer in a thousand can be a green seer. I thought the green seers were the wizards of the children, Bran said. The singers, I mean. In a sense, those you call the children of the forest have eyes as golden as the sun. But once in a great while, one is born amongst them with eyes as red as blood, or green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the forest. By these signs do the gods mark those they have chosen to receive the gift. The chosen ones are not robust, and their quick years upon the earth are few, for every song must have its balance. But once inside the wood, they linger long indeed. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees, green seers. So at this point on the TV show, as evidenced by Bran hopping back and forth between all those ravens like a security guard, you know, in front of a series of monitors looking back and forth through a bunch of security cameras, <laughs> it's obvious that Bran has learned to see beyond the trees, as is foretold in the books in this same chapter. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. Will I see my father again? Once you have mastered your gifts, you may look where you will and see what the trees have seen. Be it yesterday, or last year, or a thousand ages past. Men live their lives trapped in an internal present, between the mists of memory and the sea of shadow that is all we know of the days to come. Certain moths live their whole lives in a day, yet to them that little span of time must seem as long as years and decades do to us. An oak may live three hundred years, a redwood tree three thousand, a werewood will live forever if left undisturbed. To them seasons pass in the flutter of a moth's wing, and past present and future are one. Nor will your sight be limited to your godswood. The singers carved eyes into their heart trees to awaken them, and those are the first eyes a new green seer learns to use. But in time you will see well beyond the trees themselves. When? Bran wanted to know. So, like I was saying, it's pretty clear that Bran can see well beyond the trees themselves at this point, especially considering he also said recently that he can see everything anybody's ever done and basically knows everything. So that's pretty funny. Next, our, our cool little book crossover that we have is Gendry's Hammer. It's cool to see Gendry back and <laughs> book readers, especially people really involved in the fandom, have been wondering if we'll ever see this dude again based on the TV show. And there's been a joke going around for years that he's still rowing somewhere. So it was hilarious when Davos asked him or said to him, I thought you still might be rowing. 
thought you might still be rowing. Pretty freaking great fan service meta commentary there. So with Gendry coming back and grabbing his hammer, his beautiful war hammer with his Baratheon stag antlers, naturally it made us all think of Robert, and his, who's famous for using a war hammer during battle, and specifically of the Battle of the Trident, where he killed Rhaegar Targaryen. If you take a look at our Game of Microphones Facebook page, I've got, I'm posting a side-by-side picture with the actor Mark Addy holding Robert's hammer and Gendry holding his hammer. It's funny, though, because it's not the character of King Robert. It's the actor, Mark Addy, who played Robert wearing <laughs> modern civilian clothing and holding this monster-sized beastly hammer with all these, all these spikes and a broad meat tenderizer mallet-style hammerhead. So go check that out if you get a chance. Let's jump into some quotes about Robert with his hammer. A Game of Thrones, Eddard won. The king touched her cheek, his fingers brushing across the rough stone as gently as if it were living flesh. I vowed to kill Rhaegar for what he did to her. You did, Ned reminded him. Only once, Robert said bitterly. They had come together at the ford of the trident while the battle crashed around them. Robert with his war hammer and his great antlered helm. The Targaryen prince, armored all in black. On his breastplate was the three-headed dragon of his house, wrought all in rubies that flashed like fire in the sunlight. The waters of the trident ran red around the hooves of their destriers as they circled and clashed again and again, until at last a crushing blow from Robert's hammer stove in the dragon and the chest beneath it. When Ned had finally come on the scene, Rhaegar lay dead in the stream while men of both armies scrambled in the swirling waters for rubies knocked free of his armor. In my dreams, I kill him every night, Robert admitted. A thousand deaths will still be less than he deserves. A Game of Thrones, Bran Seven. He looked at the passing faces and the tales came back to him. The maester had told him the stories, and old Nan had made them come alive. That one is John Stark. When the sea raiders landed in the east, he drove them out and built the castle at White Harbor. His son was Rickard Stark, not my father's father, but another Rickard. He took the neck away from the Marsh King and married his daughter. Theon Stark's the real thin one with the long hair and the skinny beard. They called him the Hungry Wolf, because he was always at war. That's a Brandon, the tall one with the dreamy face. He was Brandon the shipwright, because he loved the sea. His tomb is empty. He tried to sail west across the Sunset Sea and was never seen again. His son was Brandon the Burner, because he put the torch to all his father's ships in grief. There's Roderick Stark, who won Bear Island in a wrestling match and gave it to the Mormonts. And that's Torrin Stark, the king who knelt. He was the last king in the north and the first lord of Winterfell, after he yielded to Aegon the Conqueror. Oh, there he's Cregan Stark. He fought with Prince Aemon once, and the dragon knight said he'd never faced a finer swordsman. They were almost at the end now, and Bran felt a sadness creeping over him. And there's my grandfather, Lord Rickard, who was beheaded by the mad king Ares. His daughter Lyanna and his son Brandon are in the tombs beside him. Not me, another Brandon, my father's brother. They're not supposed to have statues, that's only for the lords and the kings, but my father loved them so much he had them done. The maid's a fair one, Osha said. Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her, Bran explained. Robert fought a war to win her back. 
He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer. But Lyanna died, and he never got her back at all. So let's talk a little bit about the Battle of the Trident. Robert's rebellion was started after Prince Rhaegar supposedly kidnapped and, and, and raped Lyanna. And Robert, who was betrothed to her, basically freaked out. <laughs> First, Brandon Stark rode south to King's Landing to try to confront Rhaegar. And the Mad King basically just had him arrested and called for Rickard Stark to come south to answer for his son's crimes, at which point they were both murdered. And so so Robert and Ned banded together, you know, they were already best friends, and basically started a war to right the situation and, and get Lyanna back. Robert ended up facing off with, with Rhaegar at the, the mouth of the Trident River, um, and murdered him with his war hammer in, in single combat, sending the rubies from his breastplate flying all over into the river, which gave this, this area of the trident a new name. Henceforth, it was known as the Ruby Ford. People are still picking out rubies there, supposedly. But this is a really important battle in the war. The Prince Rhaegar was, was killed. King Ares was still alive. Ned was on his way to King's Landing, and it was after word of Rhaegar's death that Jaime ended up killing the Mad King by thrusting his golden sword through his back, at least on the TV show. I think he stabbed him in the throat from the front in the, uh, in the books. But the cool thing here is that Gendry's back and that Gendry is wielding a war hammer just like his father. So cool, man. Gendry has been drawn to the hammer his whole life, working as a smith from childhood, even without knowing who his real father was or knowing of his father's proclivity for using a hammer in combat. So it's going to be real exciting to see what happens with Gendry here. Our next book crossover is the plotline of bringing a white from North of the Wall down to show Cersei to prove to her that the army of the dead is real. And Daenerys needs proof too, so it'll prove to both of them. But this parallels a storyline from the books early on when Lord Commander Mormont orders Alistair Thorne to deliver a, a reanimated hand of a white down south to King's Landing to show to Prince Joffrey, I believe, who was the king at the time, or maybe Baratheon, one of the two, Robert Baratheon, I mean. But basically, they were becoming aware of the threat of the whites, and they needed to, to try to get more men up up north to fight the the war basically with the undead so they send Alistair Thorne away which is good for John Lord Commander Mormont picked Alistair to go as kind of like a a thank you to John for saving his life I think but uh, they they send the hand down and by the time they get to King's Landing the hand is just like super decomposed and and Tyrion is the hand of the king and Tyrion had not gotten along with Alistair Thorne so he sends him away basically and and prevents him from meeting with the king and inadvertently sabotages the efforts of the Night's Watch and Lord Commander to um, to acquire more men from the black cells of King's Landing. Robert would have been, I guess Joffrey at this point, if, if Tyrion was uh, hand, uh, he could have been instrumental in, in instructing all the great houses to send people up to the north to the wall to fight the war. But unfortunately that didn't happen because basically because Alistair Thorne was a douche and earned shitty treatment from people that he treated poorly, including Tyrion Lannister, which sabotaged the whole mission in the end. So that's a pretty neat little book wrap, uh, book crossover. 
Next, we'll mention briefly the conversation between Gilly and Sam, where Gilly is mentioning how in Septon Maynard's records, he talks about Prince Ragger having a marriage annulment and being married to another person. This, of course, in a secret ceremony, in a secret ceremony in Dorne. This, of course, means that Prince Ragar had his marriage annulled to Elia Martel, and that she married Lyanna Stark, make, making John <laughs> John a legitimate Targaryen on his birth. That means he was born a prince, the rightful king. wasn't born king because a king needs to be crowned in a, a coronation ceremony, so he would have been born a prince. Lyanna made Ned promise to keep him safe, so he was the prince that was promised. And this is huge, huge, huge news to book readers who have been speculating that there was likely a, a marriage involved to make him a legitimate Targaryen. They've been speculating this for years. And there's way, way, way too much information about R plus L equals J to get into in this podcast, considering I'm running low on time. But if you guys are interested in R plus L equals J theory and want to go super, super in-depth about it, search for Radio Westeros's podcast's episode on um, R plus L equals J, and it'll blow your mind. Really, really well researched and compiled and put together. It's super cool. So one more book parallel that we'll, we'll talk about today is the parallel at the end of the episode when our Eastwatch 7, our group of heroes, travels north of the wall. And I've heard a couple people mention that, that they thought this may be a parallel to the legend of the last hero, which I'm hoping it's not because that doesn't end very well and only the last hero comes back alive. So we'll get into a, a quick reading about that to close out tonight's episode. A Game of Thrones, Bran 4. Her voice had dropped very low, almost to a whisper, and Bran found himself leaning forward to listen. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Rhoyne, and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there, in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children, in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it and the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. The door opened with a bang, and Bran's heart leapt up to, into his mouth in sudden fear, but it was only Maester Lewin, with Hodor looming in the stairway behind him. Hodor! The stable boy announced, as was his custom, smiling hugely at them all. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully John and his six companions riding north or walking north beyond the wall does not end as poorly as the last hero's journey. And um, we do end up finding more about 
finding out more about what happened with the the last hero, he does find the children of the forest, and uh, he does get help to defeat the the White Walkers from them. At least, Bran thinks so. But that'll wrap it up for today's installment of Game of Microphones Still Smug Book Talk. I apologize for the delay in getting it out to everybody, but I've had, I've had a pretty hectic week. Started classes again this week, so I needed to make sure I got all my school stuff done before tackling the, uh, you know, the fun entertainment type stuff. So I appreciate your patience and um, putting up with the delay. Really uh, hope you guys still get a chance to listen and enjoy the uh, podcast. Please, please, please contact me if you guys want to. If you have input or theories or notice any cool book crossovers or anything like that, feel free to call or email or, or message us on Facebook or anything like that. If you'd like to call, you can call us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at game at podcastica.com and be sure to put still smug in the subject line of your email. You can check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash G-O-M podcast. And be sure to check out all the other great podcasts at podcastica.com. This is Sir Duncan signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Morgulis.